everyone. So great to see you today. My name is Christian Smith. I'm our executive director of Pastoral Ministries today. We've been talking about this idea of rethink God uh, and how oftentimes the world presents us, oftentimes Christianity has presented us, let's say a less good version of the story of God, of who he is, of what he's doing. And so we're digging into the scriptures uh, and looking at who God really is, and how an understanding of God therefore changes our life. Um, and so we've been seeing things like God is good, that God is trustworthy, uh, God is benevolent, God is giving, he's generous. And it's really incredible when you look at some of these um, ideas and, and we really begin to root them into our minds because so many of us have distorted thinking, all of us do have distorted, incom incomplete thinking about who God is. You know, if you, if you grew up with a certain type of father, perhaps, or maybe a father who wasn't there, then when you're talking about Father God, you have a certain conception of who Father God is based upon your father or perhaps lack of father. And then you approach your Father God in a way that may not be congruent with who the true and perfect Heavenly Father is. So as we've been going back and looking at who God is, we have a new understanding, perhaps, of how we can really live our lives. And... In this series, as we're looking at the story of Jesus, we're looking at different stories throughout, uh, particularly the Gospel of John, um, as it uh, just tells beautiful stories about who Jesus is. And in the last few weeks, Pastor has looked at how Jesus is the expression of the Father, or Jesus is the Word. And so think about a uh, 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 Jesus as Word, if you consider how a, a Word is the expression of your mental life. Right, And so Jesus is the word or the expression of God, the outward physical manifestation of God that we can see, that we can experience. So when we look Jesus face to face in the scriptures and in our own lives, then we see who God really is. So as we dig into the scriptures, and I'll be doing this today, is looking at a story of John. Hopefully, we will see a little bit more about who God is by looking at a story of Jesus. And so Again, as we said, we've seen different characteristics and qualities of who God is, like he's good, like he's benevolent, like he's generous, all these different kinds of things. When we understand these things, then we begin to be receptive and open to the things that God has for us. In reality, I think frequently we would like to say that we're open to the things that God has for us, but sometimes we're scared of what God has for us, or sometimes we think that the things that God has for us might not be good, or we read scripture and we see the ways that it kind of calls us to change or more life, and it, you know, we see like, take up your cross in scripture. I might say that I want to do that. You might say that you want to do that. But if we don't really, really trust God to kind of put the cross on our back, then we aren't going to take up the cross, right? Simple enough of, of psychology for each and every one of us. So um, what I want to do today, though, is, is as we see a little bit more of the goodness uh, of God, is to look at what God is actually offering us in the person of Jesus, we're going to go really basic today, but I think maybe tweak it in a way that helps us to understand what God is doing more, what the story of God really is, and what Jesus came to do. And when we trust God, then when Jesus offers us a gift in his life and his death and his resurrection, and he offers us a gift to receive, if we really trust God, then we will receive that gift into our lives. So we'll look at what that gift is, how that gift affects and changes us, and, and, and how we can actually accept it into our lives. Sound good? Ready to party, party people? Let's do it. All right. So in our scripture today from the book of John, 
we're going to read a story about a woman at the well, Samaritan woman at the well. I'm sure many of you have read the story before. So what's going on up to this point, kind of story recap, you know, before the show starts, that one minute clip that you probably always skip. What's happening is Jesus has just started his ministry, and basically, long story short, he's doing a whole bunch of crazy stuff. He's doing uh, pe- people. He, he's beginning a new ministry, and he's baptizing people into his name. Um, and he, it's like it's like the ministry is starting to take off, and people don't quite know who Jesus is at this point. Of course, people don't really fully know until he actually rises from the dead, and people are like, "Oh, you were God." That was crazy. That's a twist in the story. But as it starts. He's just kind of this, like, a, a kind of a prophet, teacher sort of person, and he's beginning to get followers, who, and, he, and he's starting to make some noise in the religious communities that had a social power stake in their region of what was going on, and he's beginning to get resistance, and he's beginning to open up and tell people more about who he is. So then we come to this point in John 4, 1 through 6. So when Jesus knew that the Sirius or the Pharisees, which was a sect of Jewish people, by the way, remember that Jesus was a Jew, or he was a Middle Eastern Jew, and so he comes into a context of Judaism, and there's a group called the Sirius or the Pharisees uh, who had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. So John was a, a, a Jew who had a lot of followers, uh, and Jesus all of a sudden was baptizing more, and he had more disciples than John. Even though Jesus himself was not doing the baptizing, his disciples were. Jesus left Judea, the area that he was in, and he went away again to Galilee, where he was before. Jesus absolutely had to go through Samaria, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, very near the plot of land that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Without going into all of that, basically Jesus is going to an area that was promised by God for the Jewish people, or what we hear colloquially, the promised land. And so he's in this area of like God-promised territory. And Jacob, a predecessor of, of his, uh, a follower of uh, Israel's God, uh, a well was there that he had dug which is wells were very, very important. If you've ever been to Israel, uh, which I was blessed to go there, it's super hot, super dry, very difficult kind of area to, to, to be in. And the wells were very important. And this was a historical well. So Jesus, exhausted by his journey, was finding a seat by the well. It was about 12 o'clock noon. So you have to imagine Jesus... Um, People are learning about what he's doing. For some particular reason, which we may touch on a little bit later, he felt like he had to go through this different route. Um, and he ends up in the heat of the day. It's very important that it says 12 o'clock noon, or it says like six hours in, in, in the Greek. It, it's, it's midday, which is when everyone basically hides from the sun and from outside. It's like you're like my, my wife, Amanda, her family lives in Florida, and it's like you hide every single day at 12 o'clock noon if you're there in the middle of the summer because you will melt very, very quickly. This is the context that Jesus is in. He's walking around, and he goes a different route, possibly a longer route, and he's like melting from the sun. And how the Greek actually reads here from translators and commentators that I've read is it's an explicit um, note of Jesus's humanness. He's, it's, it's as if he's, the original language is as if he's grasping for a seat. So he, in his like broken human state, I think, by the way, we often think of Jesus just kind of levitates everywhere. And his robe slightly flows behind him with maybe fans on him or something like that. And, uh, but Jesus, 
Imagine him by himself at this point, we'll see. He's by himself and he's like clamoring for a seat by the well because he's so tired and he's just gotten to it. And so he gets there and we continue on. A woman of Samaria comes to draw water. Jesus says to her, would you please give me a drink of water? You see, his disciples had gone off to the city to buy food. So he's by himself with this woman, a Samaritan woman. Then the Samaritan woman says to him, how come you, a Jewish man, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? You see, Jewish people are trying not to have much to do with Samaritans. We're going to talk about this later and unpack it more, but just put a note in your head that Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman by himself was, if you were a first century reader of this, like John wrote this in the first century, and you're getting this and you're reading this, their eyes would be like the springy eyes that like come out of the head, like boggling around because they're like, Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman by himself midday at a well. It would have been like the most unusual social situation, especially for like an upright man like Jesus. I'm not saying this is how it should be, but again, we'll dig into this more. Jesus responded and said to her, if only you knew the free gift of God who it is who was talking to you, asking, would you please give me a drink of water? So Jesus asked for a drink. She says, you're asking me for a drink? And he just rebuts her. If only you knew the free gift of God and who it is who is talking to you, asking, would you please give me a drink of water? You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he's like, I asked you for a drink and you're going, why are you asking me for a drink? And he's like, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for the drink. Going back and forth, back and forth. The woman says to him, sir, you don't even have a bucket. And this is a very deep well. Where do you think you're going to get this living water you're talking about? I like this kind of the scare, the, the scare quotes, like this living water you are talking about. You don't think that you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, do you, who gave us this well and who drank from it in person, along with his children and his flocks. So she's basically going, like, she's, she's almost verging on rude at this point. Like, who do, you, who do you think you are? You don't even have a bucket. You're telling me you're going to give me this living water. And this living water in their, in their context could have been understood as like a fresh stream, moving water, fresh water, cold water. Like, how are you going to get this living water? Are you better than Jacob? Like, kind of like the OG person of the faith. Like, whatever context you came from, it's like, the, like, like, the, like Jacob was the guy. You're telling me that you can give me more than what Jacob is giving to our people? And Jesus responded and said to her, every single person who is drinking this well water will get thirsty again. But whoever once drinks the water that I give will never ever thirst again. In fact, the water I will give that person will become, and that person, a fountain of water gushing up into deep, lasting life. The woman says to him, sir, please give me this water, would you, so that I won't be thirsty anymore or have to keep coming here to draw this water. Pretty interesting story especially when you understand some of the social context. So, I think we hear conversations like this a lot in the church, and we're kind of rethinking God, rethinking the story so we can better understand it. And we'll hear something like, Jesus wants to offer us living water. And just stop for a second and think of what you think of when you think of that. That's a lot of thinking of thinking. But what are you thinking of? Living water. This is just my, my guess psychologically, or I'll speak for myself rather, is I often think of something like, I don't know, like blessings or abundant life or peace or maybe happiness or joy, something like that, right? That's what Jesus is offering us in a passage like this. 
But I think it's really important to understand that a lot of times through Scripture, what we read as like nebulous existential provision, meaning things like happiness or joy, it's like it's, there's, there's not like a, a specific definition to it. It's just like, what is Jesus offering me? Good. I don't know exactly what it means. You track what I'm saying? It's like, what is Jesus offering you? And it's like whatever you want at that time. Or it's very, it's kind of like slippery and you can't quite put your finger on it. This is not what Jesus is doing here. When he's talking about living water, about a deep gushing water that's a fountain of life within you, Jesus very specifically in this moment is talking about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's really important that we get this and really important that we understand this throughout the entire course of Jesus's ministry. See, this living water is the Holy Spirit. Now, who's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is co-equal with the Father and the Son as members of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, divine and eternal, with just as much power and authority as the other persons of the Trinity. But it's, it's really funny, even when you study theology, how much we forget about the Holy Spirit. Depends on what, what church tradition you come from, but the Holy Spirit is, it's kind of like, I don't know, nerdy, like theology course, you laugh at it kind of thing. But it's like the forgotten child of the Trinity. And like my good Christian professors would say, it's actually the blank child of the Trinity. You can fill in that word if you would like. Because theologians and Bible readers and Christians for so much of time, so much focus on the Father and the Son, and the Spirit is like, a subtopic of conversation. But I think it's really easy to do this if we even just think about how the Father and the Son and the Spirit are even represented visually throughout time. For instance, the Father is most often looks like this when we see some images of the Father put up or paintings or pictures or whatever it might be. You can go to that first picture. This is the Father when we think of him. Do you agree kind of? It's like, but a lot deeper than that. And then, so here's the father, he's grand and big and he's in the clouds and you can never quite see him. And then you have Jesus. And it's like, and he's offering his heart to you and he's dying on a cross for you. And why does he have blondish hair and blue eyes? I do not quite know because he was a Middle Eastern Jew. But all cultures have kind of done that. That's a whole other topic, but all cultures have kind of made Jesus look like them. Nonetheless, if anyone wants to ask me for fashion advice, Google pictures of Jesus, and then just follow whatever the pictures say, because that's how I, I model my fashion off of the Jesus picture, if you can't see. My robe is at the cleaners, though, and I'm still knitting my sandals. All right, so you have... The Father, Jesus, and then the Spirit. This is the picture of the Spirit that you see 99% of the time represented throughout Scripture. Because there's a biblical passage in which Jesus receives the Holy Spirit upon his baptism, and it's as a dove. Do you get the kind of issue, though, that is like, it's not intentional or something, but you have the big father and then the son, and we talk about them all the much. That's, that's pretty much how we pray as in reference to them, all that. And then you have 
the spirit that's floating out here or flying out here and doing its thing. And we have to realize that so much of what Jesus is doing, and we see it particularly and explicitly in this passage right here, is that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit so much throughout his ministry. Now, what is the Holy Spirit? I'm going to play you guys like a four-minute video. Is that cool? And it, it kind of talks about the Holy Spirit uh, in a fun, different kind of way. This is a great group of people called the Bible Project. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Go to their podcast, Google them online. They're awesome, and they have like cutting-edge scholarship on what's going on in Scripture. So to hear more about what the Holy Spirit is, watch this video real quick. If you've ever heard the phrase, the Holy Spirit, and you want to know what it means, where do you start? Well, you have to start on page one of the Bible, where the uncreated world is depicted as this dark, chaotic place. But then above the chaos, God's Spirit is there, hovering, ready to bring about life and order and beauty. Okay, but what is God's Spirit? Yeah, so the Spirit is the way the biblical authors talk about God's personal presence. The Hebrew word is ruach. Ruach. Yeah, you got to clear your throat at the end. So what is it? Well, ruach can refer to a number of different things, but what they all have in common is energy. Energy? How so? So there's an invisible energy that makes the clouds move or the tree branches sway. Right. Wind. So in Hebrew, that's ruach. Okay. Now take a big breath. <sighs> so you feel that inside you. Yeah, the air? Well, specifically the energy, right? The vitality in your body that you get from breathing deeply. That too is ruach. And this is the same word used in the Bible to describe God's personal presence. Just like wind and breath are invisible, God's spirit is invisible. Wind is powerful, and so God's spirit is powerful. And just as breath keeps us alive, so God's spirit sustains all of life. Yeah, Ruach. Now, as we continue on in the story of the Bible, we see God's Ruach giving special empowerment to people for specific tasks. The first person in the Bible this happens to is Joseph. God's Spirit enables him to understand and interpret dreams. And then it happens to this guy named Bezalel, and he's an artist. God's Spirit empowers him with wisdom and skills. He's given creative genius to make beautiful things in the tabernacle. And we also see God's Ruach empower a group of people called the prophets. They're able to see what's happening in history from God's point of view. That's exactly right. And here's the problem as the prophets saw it. While God's Ruach had created a really good world, humans have given in to evil. They've unleashed chaos into it through their injustice. A new type of disorder. Yes, and the prophet said the spirit would come, just like in Genesis 1, but now to transform the human heart, to empower people to truly love God and others. How will this new act of God's spirit happen? Well, centuries pass, and we are introduced to Jesus. And at the beginning of his mission, there's this beautiful scene where Jesus is being baptized in the waters of the Jordan River. Yeah, the sky opens up, and God's Spirit comes and rests on him like a bird. The story saying that God's Spirit is empowering Jesus to begin the new creation. And we see this happening when he heals people or forgives their sins. He's creating life where there once was death. Now... Israel's religious leaders oppose Jesus, and they eventually have him killed. But even here, God's Spirit is at work. The earliest disciples of Jesus, who saw him alive from the dead, said it was God's energizing spirit that raised Jesus. This is the beginning of new creation. Yes, and it's still going. When Jesus appeared to his closest followers, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
And soon after that, the Spirit powerfully comes on all of his disciples. So that they can become a part of this new creation and share the good news and learn how to live by the energy and influence of God's Spirit. And so today, the Spirit is still hovering in dark places. Yes, pointing people to Jesus, transforming and empowering them so they can love God and others. And the Christian hope is that the Spirit is going to finish the job. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a new humanity, living in a new world that's permeated with God's love and life-giving Spirit. All right, so as we see there, I hope that helps a little bit, and it kind of lays out some of the history of the Spirit, which is so important we should talk about so much. Very simply put, if we miss the Spirit, we miss the mission of Jesus. Jesus came, when we think of why Jesus came, again, going back to some of the psychology of how we process some things, when we think of why Jesus came, it might be like to die on the cross for our sins, that kind of thing, which is true. Or it might be like, so we can have eternal life. Or maybe so we can experience like blessings today or, or hope today in light of we have suffering, and so we have an eternity. All of those things are very true. But just as important or even more specific than those things is that Jesus Christ came and into the world and looked us face to face and died and rose from the dead for the specific reason so that we could receive the Holy Spirit of God. Because the Holy Spirit is the new creation creator. It's through the Spirit that God is ordering the disordered and the chaos and the broken and the unredeemed since the beginning of time. So you have the darkness of creation that you see in Genesis, or that, that word is chaos, hovering over the waters or the chaos. And it's the Spirit that comes and begins to order. It's the Spirit of God that resides in the temple. It's the, 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 the spatio-temporal manifestation of God in this world with, with the people of Israel. And God's been in this long process, in this long plan of he wanted to be in community with us. And we see that in Eden. Humans kick God out of it. You get this broken world in which God is not present. Heaven is not on earth as it's intended to be. And it's as if Jesus, uh, God is slowly making his way back into creation. And there's this phased plan of you have Eden, that gets messed up. Then you have the temple and you have some individuals who God puts the spirit on. But the entire plan was for the spirit to be on us as the pinnacle of God's creation so that we could then be part of the entire redemption plan that God has for the entire world. You see, there was a block in the plan, like, like a, a bottleneck, if you will. And that bottleneck is our sin, which is missing the mark. Kind of a dirty word today in our world, sin. But it was a bottleneck to where we weren't able to enter into the kind of, of covenant with God that we were supposed to because of our brokenness. And Jesus broke away the bottleneck, which allowed the Spirit to flow, free, to flow free to us. So that whereas the Spirit in the Old Testament resided in a spatio-temporal crazy kind of way, like Indiana Jones' Ark of the Covenant situation here, we have the Old Testament, is that that Spirit doesn't melt your face like in the Ark of the Covenant. That spirit comes and dwells inside of you and the divine power emanates from you so that we become walking temples of the spatio-temporal presence of the divine. 
that should be like on the forefront of our minds when we think about why did Jesus come? What is Jesus offering me? It's not a nebulous concept of happiness or fulfillment or eternal life off into the future. He's offering you literally something right in this moment. Living water, fresh streams, fountains swelling up within us so that we can have the power of God emanate and change our own lives, the lives of those around us, and all of the created order. Does that make sense? And why it's a little bit more important possibly than sometimes we think about when, what, what exactly Jesus is offering us. Maybe you already know a lot of this stuff, but maybe it's just good for us to revisit it. So why do we sometimes miss this? Um, or even if we ha- have awareness of this, uh, why do we sometimes, like the woman at the well, God's like, Jesus is telling her this right here. What does she do? What does she do? Simply put, I think we sometimes miss the Holy Spirit and receiving it or even receiving more of it, even if we have received the Spirit um, of like focusing on and operating in the Spirit, is that we're distracted. What does the woman at the well do when, she, when Jesus offers it to her? Well, at first, she's like, you're nuts. You don't even have like a bucket to go to the well with. And who do you think you are, guy, who's telling me to do this? And Jesus continues to say, if you knew who I was, then you would want this living water. And eventually, guess what? At the end of that, kind of surprisingly enough, she says, sir, please give me this water, would you, so that I don't have to be thirsty anymore or have to keep coming here to draw this water. Guess what? In that moment, she accepts the Holy Spirit. The impetus or motivation appears to be literally receiving H2O. She is asking for like water, like drinking water, and Jesus still gifts her the Holy Spirit, as we'll continue to see in this passage. So we often get distracted by the, the things and, and, and the, like the, the provisions that we need right in front of us, like daily. Like when you wake up, what's the first thing you think about? I don't know. A, a lot of different things can come to mind. But oftentimes we kind of get distracted by like the basic necessities of life, right? The, the urgent and not important things that we have to deal with. And so we don't put our focus sometimes onto who God is because we're looking for like, where's my water? And Jesus is going, I have like an eternal stream, a fountain that you can receive if you will just ask me for it. And beautifully enough, wait, I don't have to drink water because I have the Holy Spirit. That's the moral of the story, right? The beauty of it is, is that you can have imperfect distractions when you're asking for the Holy Spirit and God will still give it to you, which is kind of crazy, right? I, I I think a lot of times it's like I have to get my mind in order to ask for the perfect and right things like in my prayer time in order to have the Holy Spirit uh, to, to like be operating within me. And so it's like while I'm praying, I'm not even asking for things. I'm asking that I will ask for the right thing so then I can get the thing that God wants for me. Does anyone resonate with that? Like you're all, yeah. And so that happens to me all the time. This woman's asking for the complete wrong thing. And God can sense her heart, though, of wanting whatever it is that Jesus has to offer her, even if she doesn't understand what that thing is. So often, I think that we can just sit in, 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 in trust and kind of openness to God and to say, like, God, I'm probably asking and desiring a lot of the right things right now. 
because that happens to all of us all the time. We're distracted. We have different idols in our lives. We have hopes that aren't his hopes and dreams that aren't his dreams. And God is saying like, look, like, yeah, you're going to ask for H2O, but just trust me and just ask me and I'll give you the right thing if you'll just trust me. So though we are often distracted, God is saying, I can work with your imperfect distraction if you just say, like, hey, I'm putting it in your hands. Give me the living water, and I trust that that will be the living water. God works with our imperfect distractions. But then what God does is he brings us from the imperfect distraction to come to something higher in him through the work of the Spirit. And so we see in, in uh, the second part of this passage, um, where Jesus continues to have a conversation with her. And this is where it gets kind of thorny and, and, and kind of crazy. So Jesus says to her, go, call your husband, please, and ask him to come here. The woman replied and said to him, ahem, I don't have a husband. Jesus says to her, it is thoughtful of you to say that you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the man you are now living with is not your husband. You did tell the truth in this particular the woman says to him, Sir, I have the feeling that you are a prophet. You know our ancestors worshiped here on this mountain, but you people are saying that Jerusalem is the place where people absolutely have to worship. Jesus says to her, Trust me, madam, an hour is coming. We're neither here on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people will actually be worshiping the Father. You people, I am sorry to say, worship something you don't really understand. We worship something we do understand because real salvation comes from the Jewish people. So let's take a step back here. So the Samaritan woman, a couple strikes against her where like you don't engage with this person. First of all, she's a woman by herself. And in that time, in that context, men and women would pretty, not, pretty much not speak in public together even oftentimes married couples, shockingly enough. It was just part of the social convention and norms that Jesus incarnated into. And so he's talking to a woman. That's one strike where he shouldn't be talking to her. Two, she's a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans were basically like pseudo-Jewish people, where they ended up getting mixed with a group of like pagan people from the early times. And so they, they, they worshiped like a pantheon of gods, and the God of Israel was one of those gods. So the Jewish people looked upon the Samaritans as like a terrible apostatized group of people, and they didn't want to associate with them at all. So they weren't friends, they fought, all that kind of stuff. So Jesus is talking to a woman who's a Samaritan, who women went to the wells in the morning and the night when it wasn't hot. So he was definitely by himself with her. And the fact that she was by herself at the well at noon and not at night with all the other women when they would go there was because she was likely a social outcast in many respects. She was a woman who had had five husbands. Now, that doesn't, we should not assume that that was anything bad. They could have died tragically, or they could have terribly divorced her, or something like that. But you come then to the moral indictment of the woman that Jesus notes and pulls out of her, which is that she's living with someone who not only was likely not her own husband, which is not scriptural in the way of the Christian life, but she was likely, he, he was likely someone else's husband. He is not your husband, likely intonates that he was someone else's husband. So Jesus is like breaking down this situation and, and you, you, you sense her apprehension, but you also sense the love of Jesus when he does this. You see, you guys know like empathy sandwiches are? You ever do like business classes or something like that? You should eat empathy sandwiches when you like deliver a difficult truth and like you stack two nice like uh, 
you know, nice sesame seed buns on either side of it and then the meat of it is the difficult part. And so that you start something by saying, oh, your hair looks so nice today, but that's terrible work, but it looks really good. <laughs> and you kind of hope someone doesn't notice, you know, like, what does your hair have to do with your work? No idea. Hi, Deirdre, your hair looks very nice today. This is what Jesus does here. He goes, it's thoughtful of you to say that you, um, that you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and you're living with one who isn't your husband. But this was true in particular that you said this to me. He, lovely, he lovingly approaches her. And, and again, in the original Greek, you can see this. It's so, so again, let's set the context here. Jesus is going, I have this incredible living water for you. And she's like, okay, I'll take it. Do I have to come back to the well? And then he begins to build her up into more truth in the spirit. You people, I'm sorry to say, worship something you don't really understand. We worship something we do understand because real salvation comes from the Jewish people. He's going, the Samaritan conception of God, I'm sorry to say, it's just wrong, but there's this living water that's still being offered to you. An hour is coming indeed when it is happening. It, indeed, it is happening right now when the true worshipers will be worshiping the Father by means of spirit and truth. You see, the Father too is actively seeking exactly such people, true worshipers to be the people worshiping him. The great God is spirit and the people who worship him absolutely have to worship him by means of spirit and truth. The woman says to him, I know that a Messiah is coming who is called the anointed one. When that one comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus says to her, I am he, the man talking with you. I have to rush through the ending here. I just started teaching a class and I have two and a half hours to teach it. And it is the biggest dream of any Smith man to have two and a half hours <laughs> of total airtime. <laughs> and it's all mine. And now I have like 35 minutes a.k.a. a minute and a half left for all of you guys. Okay, so I think another reason why we do not often receive the Spirit is because we don't think that the gift is for us for a number of reasons. First of all, there's one in which we think that we're, we're imperfect, that we're broken. Um, maybe this group of people worships in this kind of way, but I don't know if that fits me and who I am and all this kind of stuff. Long story short, Christianity is the beginning of terms like radical inclusivity. This kind of text, what I am literally reading and what the first century peoples read, has impacted all of Western history. The idea of being open to people and loving to people who are not like you, I mean, you just picked up your sword and you guys fought. That's what you did. There was not this sense of, of inclusive and loving communities of people welcoming in people who were so, so drastically different from you, especially being a man in this time with a woman. Now, Christianity tends to get kind of a bad rap with things like this in our, in our current society, right? Let's just be honest about that. You, oftentimes, you don't think of the concept of like inclusivity and Christianity in our contemporary world. There's a lot to talk about there, and, 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 and anyone who claims to have inclusivity is exclusive to a certain extent in that they exclude those who aren't inclusive in the way that they are. I mean, we all have our set parameters of, of what truth is that we're seeking after, of what it means to live a full life. Do you understand what I'm saying? I should unpack that more in kind of a softer kind of way, but, but, but Jesus in this time was literally basically saying in this one story, this thing that I'm offering, if I'm offering it to this woman who's living with her husband, living with a man out of wedlock, who's a Samaritan, who's a woman, if I'm offering it to her, I'm offering it to absolutely everyone. 
no matter where you are, no matter what you look like, no matter what you've done, no matter who you're living with. But what I think that, that we often think is that, you know, like whenever you see a commercial for something and it's like, free, you can get this for free, 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 free. You always you never really trust it, or at least I never trust it, because there's always fine print. There's always fine print. If you do this, our telemarketers will call you 30 times a day. Just give us your phone number and your home phone number and your social security number and your... And all the gifts that are offered to us have some sort of fine print to it. And I think this is often how we think of Christianity or even receiving the Holy Spirit into our life is that we see the fine print of, but now I have to live all of these ways. You know what I mean? Like, oh, now I have to have hope, peace, and love, and gentleness. And maybe I have to move out of the house of the person that I'm living with right now because this isn't how God's calling me to live. Or maybe I have to live according to a new sort of ethic in this kind of way or this kind of way. And maybe I, and there's all these different things that are the fine print. And we go, this gift is not for me because I don't want to have to live up to that fine print. Well, I think we have to switch our conception of it and realize that what we often think of fine print is actually the gift. If we trust God and God is offering us his Holy Spirit so that there can be a divine fountain of empowering and love and beauty and new creative order operating within us, then we can trust that whatever comes from the Holy Spirit, whatever change that may be, will be good and loving for our lives. And so what we often think is the fine print as the prerequisite for us to receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, once we receive the Holy Spirit, the fine print which isn't really fine print, is actually the gift of change that the Holy Spirit offers us in our lives. Does that make sense? It's the Holy Spirit that causes all of those things to happen, not you ordering things in a certain kind of way. So you might categorize yourself as fitting into a certain kind of person or your identity operates in a certain kind of way of this and this and this and this, and I'm not this, therefore I can't receive the Holy Spirit or even I don't want to receive the Holy Spirit. But I just beg you, even if it's just like, a momentarily in your life today to say, God, if you are good, and I think that's possible, God, if you are good, and you're saying that I can receive your Holy Spirit no matter what, where I am right now, that you're going to affect changes in me that maybe right now I think of as fine print, but actually is the beauty of the gift that you're offering me. And if you actually just practice the trust of believing that God has good things for you and that he's gonna change you, He's going to. I hope so. Doesn't everyone just want to be what they are for their whole lives? I do not. And I'm guessing none of us do either. That God has things to change you so that you will become, not, not just for your own benefit or any of that kind of stuff, because you are a walking temple carrying the living water of God within you so that you can go and make and redeem the world into what God originally intended it to be. This isn't like self-help. It helps you. It's not about that. It's about taking part in the biggest and most important story in all of history and about making chaos into order and ugliness into beauty and hate into love and anger into patience in this world. I have a lot more that I'd like to say, but I'll kind of stop there. But I want to do one thing first, which is to say, I don't normally do this kind of thing, but if you would at this moment with me, all of us, for those of you who maybe are like, ah, I don't know if I'm into this kind of thing, 
I encourage you just to think today about what it means to say, maybe I just want H2O today, but I'm just going to ask for the Spirit and just not not worry myself in my mind as to what this means to receive it. And then for those of us who are believers who have received the Holy Spirit, it appears in Scripture that there are times where we can be more full of the Holy Spirit. Because you have churches in the Bible that are really broken but doing things in the Holy Spirit, and Paul is saying, you have not developed in the Spirit even though you have the Spirit. So all of us can be built up more and more in the Spirit even if we've already received it. And so right now, if you feel comfortable, I encourage everyone, you can close your eyes, you can not close your eyes, I'll close my eyes, um, or you can just look at me, that's fine. It's just to kind of like quiet yourself. You take one deep breath. And to think about being that person at the well. And visualize Jesus in whatever way that means. It's going to be an imperfect version of Jesus, not what he actually looked like. The temperature's probably off in your head. You just don't have to worry about it. And without thinking about if you're doing it in all the perfect ways, and in your doubt even, say like, God, I don't really believe this too much right now maybe or what this looks like. I just encourage you to ask for his living water, the Holy Spirit. You can just say that in your mind. Lord, I ask you for your living water, your Holy Spirit. As simple as that. I don't always believe it. I don't always trust it. I don't know what it's supposed to feel like if I really feel that. But I ask for your divine power within me. And for me to think of you. That's it. Nothing else. 